Welcome in to another new podcast from Codings Pro Magazine. My name is Ben DuBose, and I'm the news editor for the AMP Publications team. Today, we're going to be talking about the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, better known as OSHA, and their proposed changes to the OSHA lead standard. Clearly, there are a number of potential ramifications there for Codings contractors. To discuss what those are, I'm joined by Allison Kalin. Allison has over 30 years of nationwide experience as a technical leader in quality assurance, construction management, quality control and assurance, safety and health and environmental regulations, and standards related to coatings, steel fabrication, and all sorts of related industries. Allison also runs her own consulting company, and she's active in the industry well beyond that as a teacher of SSPC C3 and C5 courses, and she's on the board of directors for the AMP Global Center. Allison, good morning. Thank you for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing fine, Ben. Thanks for having me. Absolutely thrilled to have your insight and pick your brain on the upcoming changes to the lead standard. Before we do that, I gave a brief introduction as far as your career and accomplishments, but is there anything our listeners should know that we haven't mentioned already as far as your background over the 30 years or so that you've spent in this industry and what really makes you qualified? to be someone that um, is a useful resource for the industry on the lead standard today. Um, thanks for asking. I have a, one of the weird trajectories into our business because I came in as a regulator and as an environmental engineer. Mm. So I got started in this business in about 1986, enforcing and writing regulations to control emissions from abrasive glass cleaning projects. I went from there to KTA and was their EHS manager and quality assurance manager for about 20 plus years. I'm an ACE level uh, three senior inspector, as well as a practicing industrial hygienist. You mentioned, you know, some of the things I've done. I'm also a um, prolific writer, both for JPCL and Codings Pro and anybody else on everything having to do with EH and else and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I've had my own business for about the last 10 years, and it's really given me an opportunity to serve the industry from all sides, from consultant to contractor to owner. Um, and as you note, I'm an educator and teaching C3 is probably the very favorite thing I do. So. And what's the website for your business? Remind me that. It is ABKalin, which is A-B-K-A-E-L-I-N dot com. Okay, that's easy. Just want to make sure that that's out there as a resource for our listeners. Anyway, as far as the lead standard, I know we could talk all day about the depth of this and the amount of changes that once this is potentially in effect in 2024, that this could have for coatings contractors. At a high level, what did they announce earlier this summer and what's coming down the pike? What are some of the more meaningful elements of the changes that they've proposed? Okay, just a real quick bit of background. OSHA has two lead standards, one for general industry, one for construction. The general industry standard has been in place for about 50 years without significant change. Mm -hmm. The construction industry, which most of us work under, has been in place for 30 years without change. They, the significance of what they're doing now is really there's a three-part thing. One, they're, they've changed a lot of our knowledge on health effects, which is partially driving this regulatory change. And they are looking at major changes to components of the lead standard 
such as blood lead levels and the permissible exposure limit for airborne exposure that will impact our contractor workforce. The other big piece of this is this is only a small part of what's going on currently related to lead. There is a, a whole of government look at every lead standard that could also affect hazardous waste regulations and the amount of lead you can put in paint and other things that will affect our industry. I should point out that some of the specifics are available at OSHA.gov slash lead. Sometimes it's difficult to get into the weeds as far as the data in a podcast format. So anyone that wants particulars, again, OSHA.gov slash lead, and you can get the advance notice of the proposed rulemaking. As far as contractors, what are some of the highlights in terms of uh, the timetable moving forward? How quickly is this going to move? And what are some of the subject areas that they really need to be aware of? Okay, um, this is what they call an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. So there will be a proposed rule that will also have an opportunity to comment on. And then finally, they'll post a final rule. Mm -hmm. I'd expect the proposed rule to come out maybe within six months to a year depends on how fast OSHA moves, and to see a final rule sometime in 2024 at the latest. The big impacts of this, um, let's talk about health effects real quick. Mm -hmm. So they've changed our understanding of health effects because a lot of this is based on more recent studies by different agencies and so on. But for those of us that have lived in the lead world, the biggest changes I see is one, they have now identified that lead has a route of entry through dermal exposure. Previously, we only thought that it came through inhalation and ingestion. Second big thing or the other big thing is they've now defined lead as a carcinogen. They say that it can cause cancer of the lung, stomach, kidney, and brain. That has never been a health effect. In addition to that, they've expanded on the neurological effects of lead. They've added immunological effects and musculoskeletal effects, such as bone loss, perial dental loss, and uh, dental effects. So our understanding of the health effects have been very much expanded by some of the new research. Hand in hand with this, they found that the health effects all started a far lower level than OSHA knew when they wrote these regulations 30 to 50 years ago. When the regulations were written, they thought 40 micrograms per deciliter was safe and removal at 50 micrograms per deciliter is safe. We now understand that health effects start as low as five um, Mm. and can start um, causing more significant items. So in relationship or in response to this new knowledge about more health effects, it being a carcinogen, and that they start to have um, impact at far lower blood lead levels, OSHA has now been compelled to write or relook at the regulations um, related to lead. In addition to that, three states, California, Washington, and Michigan have either proposed rules or have made regulatory changes to their lead standards 
suggesting that we need lower blood lead levels, lower PELs, and maybe some additional um, other practices. Um, so here's the really big or major changes that I think OSHA is proposing. And a lot of this is based on those three regulations and some medical guidelines that have been out for a while. I think that they're going to look at reducing the blood lead level to 10 to 20 micrograms per deciliter. Remember, currently, it's at about 40 to 50. I think that they're going to trigger initial blood lead testing at a different threshold. So now only people that have an exposure for one day above the action level, this looks like it'll say anybody on a lead project may need to have blood lead level testing. They're looking at increasing the frequency of testing. Currently, it might be at an every two-month or six-month level. It looks as if they were going to go to monthly or bi-monthly testing and some other triggers if blood lead levels start to rise. Um, the one maybe positive thing is they are removing the requirement for ZPP, known as uh, zinc protopurifurin testing, because they don't think it's accurate anymore. Along with this medical surveillance, we now will have to see a different medical removal criteria, which means an employer has to remove a worker from an exposure above the PEL. These may be as low as 20 to 30, or having one high blood lead level um, or repeated blood lead levels, depending on which state's um, suggestions they follow. Mm -hmm. This can have a major impact on our workforce because employers have to protect jobs and benefits and pay for any worker that is medically removed or find another place to put them. And at these low, low levels, that may be very difficult to do on some of our large painting projects or for contractors that only have one or two jobs. In order to get our blood lead levels low, you have to reduce the amount of airborne exposure you have. We call those the permissible exposure limit, the PEL, and the action level. The PEL for lead is currently 50. The action level is currently 30. The expected reduction to the PEL is to have a PEL somewhere between 10 to 20, maybe 25, and an action level at one half of that. That has a huge impact because the PEL kicks in all the requirements of the OSHA lead standard, including requirements for engineering controls. That would be containment and ventilation, mm -hmm. uh, alternate removal practices, um, showers, the need for compliance programs, and other things. And then they sort of ask some, it will probably drive some changes in personal protective equipment and hygiene practices since they now are saying lead can come through a dermal or through the skin exposure. So we might see more requirements for like impermeable PPE, um, more requirements regarding how you change and launder that, maybe what you're allowed to wear underneath personal protective clothing um, and those kind of triggers. So that's, a, that's about a 10,000, 20,000 feet view of mm. what they're asking us about. And that's why it is so important that our uh, membership and our workers and our owners and our stakeholders go explain to OSHA what works for us 
by the uh, August 29th deadline. Yeah, and to underscore the sense of urgency here, that August 29th date is pretty quick in terms of the turnaround time because I'm looking at the OSHA.gov slash lead page. The advance notice was issued on June 28th, so basically just a two-month time period for those comments. That's pretty fast by OSHA standards, right? Uh, it is to me, and like I said, to me that signifies an intent to move this through as quickly as possible. It's been on their long-term agenda. It's part of this broader initiative. So I think we need to speak while we have the chance. Mm -hmm. What should companies be doing now to really start this process of bracing themselves and preparing for these changes? You mentioned some of the challenges, particularly for smaller companies. What are some of the things that they should be, if not putting in place, at least looking at right now so that they're prepared to act by 2023 and definitely by 2024? Um, I think there's a couple of things. One, we have to look at our current blood lead levels and what we see as being acceptable and start changing that mindset now because blood lead levels don't reduce themselves quickly. So we need to start that. The other mm -hmm. thing is that we have a, we use or rely on a lot of um, equipment, dust collectors, recyclers, air movement, and other things, some of which is very, very old. So we also should start really evaluating the engineering controls we are using to reduce exposures and look at replacement or repair or upgrades because having these kind of controls at these levels are going to be the only way to really meet these standards. And then the last thing is this, we've been doing this for 30 years and a lot of times it gets stale and everybody needs to take a fresh look at our work practices and respiratory protection and how you do things because all of those things together are how we'll meet whatever the final reg is. You mentioned engineering controls and certainly that's the ideal, but when it's not or even in tandem with the engineering controls, obviously PPE can be the last line of defense for a contractor. What types of safety or PPE technologies are potentially available that can help contractors meet this standard? I know it's a huge difference from when you really started in this industry 30 to 35 years ago. So what types of safety and PPE technologies should contractors be thinking about to really help them meet these types of regulatory changes and these trends? Okay, I do want to go back real quick on the engineering control thing, though, because that actually has to be the first step mm -hmm. from a regulatory perspective. You must or, um, institute your protection under mm -hmm. what they call a hierarchy of controls. Yeah. So we have to focus on our equipment and that equipment could be big dust collectors, but also vacuum shrouded power tools or um, blast nozzles, right? Mm -hmm. Or wet methods. Now, when you come to PPE, clearly there's personal protective equipment, clothing, I'm sorry, that can sometimes be cotton coveralls or Tyvek suits, gloves. The other thing we have to really look at is face protection because when lead is present, likely hexavalent chromium, arsenic, um, 
cadmium and other things that are now dermal poisons can go through the skin. So mm-hmm. many people wear half mask respirators. Maybe they'll need to upgrade to full face respirators to protect the face or the skin on the face from dermal exposures. You know, when you talk respiratory protection, you also have to look at the blast helmet. And are you using a blast helmet or a supplied air respirator that gives you the highest protection factor available? So looking at those type of things and what is available, and a lot of it comes down to training, 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 training. Because one of the things is the employer always has to provide all of these controls and training and um, PPE and respiratory protection. But if the workers don't use them, they still have exposures. So we really need the workers themselves to make sure they're engaged in protecting themselves. I want to circle back to your comment quickly about engineering controls. You mentioned how you can use certain attachments to equipment as a means of assisting with compliance on the lead standard, but really we're talking broader regulatory trends at this point and where the landscape is going. I also want to ask you about the materials themselves. I know we've seen a big trend in the last 20 or so years away from many of your traditional solvent-borne coatings. Is there anything in terms of the materials themselves that might potentially change or need to be considered when contractors are looking to stay in compliance and keep their workers safe? That's a really broad question. So generally we expose ourselves to lead in these other hazardous constituents through the removal of paint. Mm-hmm. And there still is no industrial regulation that prohibits us from putting lead in paint, industrial paints. And we still have lead in current paints that are being applied today, mm-hmm. as well as hexachrome and cadmium and everything. So the first thing is recognizing what's in the coating to be removed. The other thing is you have abrasives that are being used that potentially have trace amounts of many of these regulated metals, including lead, that you have to be mindful of. And as I mentioned, some of the coatings we put on today have trace amounts of lead in their components, such as some of the zinc-based coatings and fireproofing coatings and um, Um. pavement marking coatings. So a contractor really has to look at all of the avenues of exposure that they have and look at how they can reduce them. Now, when you talk about putting a tool on, like a vacuum-shrouded power tool, that sounds great. It's the best way to reduce an exposure from an industrial hygienist, environmental engineer point of view. However, from a production point of view, you could not do an entire bridge using a vacuum-powered tool unless you were willing to pay millions and millions and millions of more dollars. So that's what we're confronted with in the industrial painting industry is we need a certain amount of efficiency. We can't tie a bridge up for three years to paint it most of the time. Um, And the very best environmental and um, worker exposure controls generally are the most labor intensive. That's why we build big containments and we ventilate it with dust collectors in many like large scale industrial groups. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. 
And thank you so much for the holistic overview there. I know it was a broad question, but I just wanted to touch on the materials aspect because we talk about the equipment, we talk about the PPE. I want to make sure we acknowledge the potential role that materials could have as well. And of course, it's far more nuanced when we're talking about certain types of projects. We're just trying to give an overall overview here of factors that people in the, in the industry should be aware of, especially in the next couple of years as this proposed change and potentially others for that matter get closer to fruition. I want to circle back to the advocacy front. You touched on this earlier in terms of organizations, uh, certainly AMP, which I'm a part of on the staff, but also, for example, the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. You've got all sorts of trades organizations that exist for potential situations like this to not just keep their members aware, but also to advocate on behalf of them. So what can and should organizations like AMP and IUPAT and anyone else uh, be doing to help? And also what can their members do individually or as a company on this front? You know, the, the real trigger right now is to try to solicit what our opinion is as AMP or IUPAT or the National Steel Painting Contractors Association. Mm -hmm. What blood lead levels do our membership think are realistic and that we can meet? And then I envision these larger organizations as providing a voice to our membership collectively, very much like what we did in the early 90s through SSBC and other contractor organizations when the lead standard first came out. So that's the immediate response is how do we find out what our members think their position is and get it to OSHA. The second thing is OSHA historically has a misunderstanding of our industry when they write these standards. They base the lead standard on housing regs and removal by power tools and other things. They do not have a good understanding of some of the more aggressive techniques we use, like abrasive blast cleaning or water jetting or ultra high pressure water jetting, and why we do it from a coatings point of view rather than a lead abatement point of view. Mm -hmm. And we have to develop expertise, training, and tools to improve our owner and contractor knowledge. OSHA is only one side of the equation. EPA regulates hazardous waste, and that touches every single asset owner, manufacturer, or contractor, because they have to evaluate whether they fall under hazardous waste regulations, and if so, manage that appropriately. You've had a long history with SSPC over your career, distinguished career, that is, and you're now on the AMP Global Center Board of Directors. This is sort of an interesting test from the standpoint of AMP representing the legacy SSPC crowd because many of these considerations that we've been discussing for the past 20 plus minutes are really relevant to the contractors. So what should AMP be doing as the larger organization? And in this case, we're talking about AMP specifically rather than industry associations as a whole. What can AMP do to really represent the legacy SSPC crowd and the interest of those contractors and that base? What should we be doing over the next few days and weeks? Um, I think we need to reach out to uh, 
SSPC legacy, not only contractors, but consultants and mm-hmm. industry experts who have maybe, you know, drifted away or retired and, and try to get them back involved because this is a really um, important time. We also have to learn about the pain of the contractors that come from the SSPC legacy side and a better understanding of what their world is, not only with OSHA, but again, EPA regulations and access issues. And how do you get an 80,000 CFM dust collector close enough to a bridge to be an effective engineering control and the labor thing? So I think a lot of it is developing knowledge and understanding and true expertise in these issues that the SSPC legacy contractors are dealing with, just like AMP and NACE did for cathodic protection and other specific industries. What are some of the things that AMP can do beyond August 29th? Obviously there's an immediate uh, deadline as we talked about for comments, but what's potentially gonna be next on the horizon once we get beyond that August 29th date for comments to OSHA, is it then basically educating the workforce to make sure that they're aware that this is coming? What are the criteria that we should be looking at once we get to September and the comment period is over with, but obviously there's still the challenge of making sure that people are aware and gearing up for these changes when they're implemented, possibly as soon as 2024. Um, I think it there's a multi one using our advocacy arm to get in front of OSHA and explain again that we aren't lead abatement contractors. We are um, coatings professionals that are doing surface preparation, applying coating to an asset, mm-hmm. and lead happens to be a part of that just so they understand our world. Um, we need to be um, developing better training and reaching out and making sure that all workforces understand. Um, I think it's interesting because it's not just SSPC legacy contractors, it's any contractor that has the potential to remove an existing paint mm. has, risk, has, has risk of falling under these regulations. And some of the other changes that they are implying can have ramifications into commercial and building um, coatings work because they are also looking at redefining the amount of lead in paint that kicks in OSHA training requirements. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. EPA training requirements and other things. And again, the hazardous waste aspect affects anybody that might take an old coating off of a surface. Hmm. I think that's fantastic insight. Allison, we're going to wrap up here uh, as we wind down. Where can people get more information from you or just useful resources really anywhere on this front? Certainly for the OSHA standard in this case, it's OSHA.gov slash lead. We've mentioned that a few times, but if you want, go ahead and uh, remind people of your website again and also any words of advice that you have to them as they look to perhaps learn more about this. My website is abklin.com. I wish to say that I had current information on it. I don't. I'm a very small company. Um, <laughs> Fair. My friends, the National Steel Painting Contractor Association, that's NS, um, National Steel NSPCA, 
org has a website and they've put some information up there. They are coordinating a technical response and I'm helping them. I'm certain the International Union of Painter and Allied Trades are doing something and I'm not exactly sure who is coordinating AMP's effort, but I sure hope that we have one going there as well. As far as the National Steel Painting Contractor Association, it's NSPCassociation.org. That's yeah, the national yeah, yeah. NSPCA. Yeah, I went to NSPCA.org and that, that went somewhere else, but it's NSPCassociation.org. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> See, I have it as a quick link. So they do have an urgent update on their website asking for their membership to provide input. Okay, okay? gotcha. And that's what we'd love to see other folks doing gotcha. as well. Okay. Well, I think this is where we will wrap it today for Allison Kalen. I'm Ben Dubose. If you want more resources on our end, I mentioned amp.org and of course OSHA.gov slash lead. But for us at Codings Pro, where we've got all sorts of case studies and technology reviews for industrial and commercial coatings contractors, concrete steel and roof substrates, we've got it all codingspromag.com. And of course, our print issues, which come out bi-monthly and then in the months that there isn't a full-blown issue we have supplements covering niche areas of the industry with that i'll sign off for allison i'm ben thanks to you for listening please come back soon for another episode of the codings pro interview series